2: Go behind the scenes and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra
2: cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and...
0: This episode of Stuff I Don't Want You to Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest,
1: score game changing innovations with limited time deals on select next gen Alienware gaming tech.
2: New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor,
0: featuring awe inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential.
1: Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game. Gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories.
2: When you shop online at Alienware.com/deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition, and free shipping on everything.
0: Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com/deals.
2: That's Alienware.com/deals.
3: Hey, Sarah! I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. Oh.
2: Welcome
1: back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel.
2: I'm Ben. You are you. That makes this Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, but not the average episode of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Isn't that right, guys?
0: We've got a little added uh, value here uh, in this particular pair of episodes. That's true. Is this our first ever two-parter?
2: Uh no. no, I don't
1: think so. I know we've we split DARPA up into two and there mm-hmm. were a couple other ones that we've yeah. done in the past. Okay, well
0: this is definitely our first ever two part interview episode, correct? That's
2: true. About the same thing. So uh by way of explanation, ladies and gentlemen, uh you have heard Matt Noll and I refer to uh or allude to various adventures that we've taken or new things that we said we're coming or we're on the way. We get around. We get around. And, uh, this time we got around to, uh, we got around to a part of the world, at least socially speaking, that we haven't really explored in too much depth. And that was a, uh, it concerned a tale that is stranger than fiction. So you've heard of undercover operations, right? Like uh what what exactly is an undercover operation? It's
1: pretty simple. Uh one person who is usually in law enforcement in some way pretends to be let's say a nefarious gang member from a different part of town or new to town but I'm into all this bad stuff like I I like to let's say launder money. Or maybe Mm. deal drugs.
0: Or maybe torture kittens. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do one of those things, get in with a crew, like low-level maybe, Mm. somehow like that.
0: And that's a distinction that we need to make right up front. There uh, are certainly different kinds of um, undercover operations. Some might just be... For a particular sting, where you have a cop posing as as one of these various yeah, types call. that you mm-hmm. mention, mm-hmm. but what we're talking about today is long term, deep undercover operations, which is a whole other
2: ballgame, a very dangerous one indeed. So, uh, just to illustrate the difference uh, pretty quickly, one of the rules is always keep things as close to the truth as possible, so you don't compromise your actual identity. So, Matt Frederick then. For instance, uh, if, is it okay if we make you street level? Sure. Okay. So Matt Frederick then, uh, is assigned to do some, uh, street level infiltration of maybe someone selling, what's a drug?
1: Uh, well, i I have to go in and infiltrate Stringer Bell's like low level crew. Okay. So I, I've got to get in, get in with the, uh, the group who's selling drugs out of the, the apartment. That, yeah, yeah, so
2: okay, so you become, uh, Matt Frederick is gone and replaced by uh, Murdoch farnsworth yep <laughs> and, uh, and, that is the most street level name i've ever heard <laughs> in my life murdoch farnsworth i think people just call you murdoch yeah murdoch farnsworth uh has a uh, ci or an informant who comes along with him to vouch for him from their days in an outlaw biker gang or something right sure yeah and the weird thing is that at some points. uh Murdoch is going to have to do things that Matt Frederick would never do, you know, probably sample a drug at some point, possibly, because this a lot of the street people might other illegal stuff. Yeah. Other illegal stuff, aid and Mm abets, crimes, maybe rough someone up to to show that you are Murdoch, possibly even
0: witness a murder that you could have prevented. Possibly,
2: possibly not,
1: because, you know, I'm a little squeamish, So
2: And the line blurs. And this line is even Blurrier if we take, for instance, uh, Noel Brown and while Matt Frederick is working at the street level operation, let's say, uh, Noel Brown is infiltrating a human trafficking ring. This is even stickier. A human trafficking ring, uh, because let's see, he changes his name. What's his name now, Matt?
1: Nicholas Barnaby. <laughs> yes, Nicholas Barnaby,
2: two first names. Nick Nicholas Barnaby a uh, a we- old money wealthy philanthropist who has and philanderer. And philanderer <laughs> who has decided that the only people you could trust in this world are people that you own. <laughs> and so he is infiltrating uh sadly this is true uh because of Hartsfield Airport here in Atlanta, it is a hub for human trafficking. So is uh, you you would see hopefully ladies and gentlemen how this undercover sting kind of stuff can happen, as Noel said, for a variety of reasons. So we've got Murdoch on there for maybe a few months, right? Sure. Pull in everyone you can, maybe nab somebody, maybe the uh, maybe there's something political where you're involved, where they say, okay, now we need the bust because someone's coming up for election, which unfortunately happens. Mm-hmm. But in the other case, we, we have Mr. Barnaby...
0: I am like embedded in this world. You yeah. Know? I yeah. Mean, I am make, I am playing the long game. I am making connections, meeting mm-hmm. people above those connections and doing mm-hmm. everything in my power to make it as high up the chain as possible so that I can turn those people in to my, um, people that I answer to.
2: And should you, should either of you survive, uh, the strange and terrifying thing is that neither of you will be able to live Fully return to your natural life because no. there will always be concerns for your safety. Right. What's going to happen when uh, the foreign connection for whatever drug empire Murdoch bust learns that Murdoch Farnsworth is fictitious. But someone who looks a lot like him lives in the same area.
1: Sure. Well, even if we successfully put people away for years
0: maybe even a life sentence for 20 years in the future, those people will be out of jail. Well, not only that, I mean, if watching shows like Oz or, you know, the Sopranos teaches you anything, it's that being in prison is not the end all be all. You still have associates on the outside Mm -hmm. that you can communicate with quite easily, especially if you're uh you know, a big player. Mm And in that scene, you are protected and you are surrounded by your people in prison. And it's very easy to get a message out to put out a hit even from prison. So why are we beating around the bush with all of this uh, fantasy, shall we say?
2: Ah, yes. Excellent question. Uh, perhaps we're more painting the background of the picture of today's topic, which is undercover policing, which, which is, uh, these sting operations, these long-term embedded things. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt and Noel and I, spoke with someone who has done this in real life and uh during the course of our interview we got a firsthand look at how these uh how these operations occur both for the good and the bad and we do want you to know that due to security concerns we have had to mask this person's voice uh this man's name is Robert Maser
1: now last friday Ben and Noel and I got to go and see the film The Infiltrator, which is based on the book that this man, Robert Mazur, wrote about his time infiltrating the the Medellin cartel in Colombia. Now – This show is going to focus a lot on that film and what we saw and the experiences because it is based on what this guy actually did. And you're going to see as we get into some of these questions, he's kind of separating what became the film
0: as opposed to what was,
4: you know,
1: his real life and what he experienced.
0: Fascinating in and of itself because it's how cool was it to be able to talk to the subject of a biopic like this and say, Hey, so what's up with that scene where uh, you had to go into the um, Santeria temple and, um, you know, be kind of given a test by, you know, this practitioner. A Pedrino. Uh, a Pedrino, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, wh- how did that really go down? This is a question that you will hear. And just just to give you a little context, this is a scene that happened in the movie where this band is being vetted by these high-level drug officials. Spoiler alert. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I just wanted to give you a sense of how cool it was to be able to separate – What happened in the film with what happened in real, in the actual operation, the course of the operation. And there's a lot of moments like that. It's a great film. I really would recommend it. It was a lot, it reminded me, kind of had the, the feel of Goodfellas in a way, that kind of really dynamic, interesting kind of, um, ensemble cast. And it was very funny. It moves very quickly and it doesn't pull any punches. It really gives you a sense. There's no glorification of either what this man is doing because he has to do some pretty intense stuff in the name of his operation and getting it done. And then, of course, you see the havoc that drugs and drug violence and smuggling and money laundering can wreak on people's lives.
2: So Robert Mazur began something called Operation Sea Chase. And with a team at its height, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, he and his group... Did something extraordinary at the time, which is they began to follow the financial footprints rather than the narcotic footprints, by which we mean uh, they didn't just start chasing cocaine shipments from CIs or whatever, or, you know, informants. Mm -hmm. What they started doing was uh, finding out what banks handled what money, where it went, how it changed hands. And over the course of this, he became, uh, Bob Mazer became somebody named Bob Musella.
0: We were given the opportunity to interview Mr. Mazer because of his involvement in this movie. Um, an agency reached out to us and asked if we were interested in speaking with him. And it was something we just could not pass up. And while the infiltrator did not sponsor this episode, we do have a sponsor. And we're going to get to that now and then get right into the interview with Mr. Mazer.
2: Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada yada yada. That
1: means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises.
2: Outsmarting yada yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then... You found yourself subscribed?
0: Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had, like, put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to, like, go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying.
1: Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada
2: from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most.
0: Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
1: Like, are you a fist pumper?
2: So, first things first, Mr. Mazur, uh, how satisfied are you with the adaptation
4: of the story? Hmm. Well, you know, um, and I'm say that, you know, it's very difficult for me to compare because we're talking apples and oranges. You know, the film is for entertainment, mm-hmm. um, and my book is my attempt to tell my version of the truth. And I say it that way because, you know, this was no individual effort. This was a team effort by about... 250, at the height of the operation, about 250 people, so, and, and I think if you asked each of them to write a book, you'd probably have some variations in it, not because anyone's not being truthful, just because they have their own perspectives, and so for me, um, you know, I, I think that the, the film adaptation certainly brings across a, um, a lot of the the issues that need to be brought across, and, of course, when they want to go from point A to point B, if it took me 25 steps to do it, they just obviously can't do it in that medium. But, um, they, they, they get to the end point and, and uh, I think deliver, um, the type of end result on a given topic, like the, the, the relationship between, let's say, the, me, Brian Cranston and Benjamin Bratt. Uh, in the film, mm-hmm. you know, there, some of the things that are in there that are, that build to you helping the moviegoer to recognize that this is, um, beyond just an undercover agent and a bad guy dealing together and, and being an undercover agent causes you to have to, de- to build some bonds with, with a person, um is different. It happened a little bit differently with me, but the end result is still the same. You you still had a recognition by both characters that you got to know each other over a period of time and that that involves much more than just um the I guess clinical contact as undercover agent and, and bad guy if 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 I'm getting through on that.
0: It's so fascinating to me. This is Noel, by the way, um, watching this film and, and, and thinking of it in kind of a meta sense where, you know, clearly we're watching this very excellent character actor, Brian Cranston, play this role of a man that is essentially being a character actor and playing a role and having to disappear into a part. Um, I just find that very fascinating. I'm just wondering if that aspect of it felt did it ring true to you? Just the the um, the need to completely disappear into these covert characters that you're essentially creating?
4: Yeah, you know, and and you bring up a good point about character because the the character that I created because um, when I was trained to be a long term undercover agent, I mean, I I, I was an agent traditional. In a traditional sense, for 14 years before I went through the undercover school and then began to develop um, the undercover identity of Robert Musella. But one of the things that was taught to me right from the very beginning um, it was that I really needed to build a, a persona that would put me in a position to lie the least. So, because it's so hard to to keep track over a years period of time uh, if if you're not naturally working within your own skin, so to speak. So I'm originally from New York. I have previously, before working for law enforcement, I worked at a bank and then I worked in a brokerage firm. And I um, have some of the family experiences, but I lived in a neighborhood and was in and around some people who were um, certainly connected with another part of the world than I than I became connected with. Um, and and so I, I had a sense of what uh, Italian American organized crime was about, and and so I didn't really have to. Uh, that's that's what Bob Musella had in him too. Bob Musella was was a guy who had. And my my degree was in business administration, finance, and I had a, a heavy emphasis in accounting. And and so was Bob Musella. He was a, a guy who. Uh, knew how to deal in the business world and had a financial background and was from the New York area and had these connections with uh, organized crime. And and so a lot of that stuff is stuff that I was very, very comfortable with. I I didn't create a a persona where, you know, I would turn on a switch and now I was this big flamboyant guy that that was a completely different person. My personality, I think, um, that I portrayed was probably similar to what um, my real personality is, I think, you know, at least what I would hear back from uh, the traffickers about why they were interested in doing business with me was because I was stable. I was I knew about things that they didn't know about in the financial markets. I was cautious. Um, <clears throat> I was low key. Um, all of those things were very important to them, and and all of those things those things were really a part of Bob Mazur.
2: And this this is a this is a fascinating aspect of the story because, as you say, being in someone else's uh, skin for the duration of this operation, uh, the, the operation specifically cited is called sea chase. And one thing that really impacted us and impacts our audience as well is the recognition of just how long term this operation. Became could could you tell us in our audience a little bit about the origin or the genesis of Sea Chase and uh, Bob Musello?
4: Sure. Well, having worked on a multi-agency task force that's whose principal responsibility was attempting to identify the command and control of the cartels, as well as identifying. the the money launderers who were servicing the command and control. Um, We had been using search warrants, wiretaps, historical witnesses, uh, that type of thing, and came to the conclusion, um, and and I was really blessed with working with a leadership that was willing to hear out the idea of this plan. Um, um, My view was... And it was shared by a few of my colleagues that the best way to accomplish our goal was to infiltrate their money laundering systems. And that that was embraced. So that got me through the undercover school that got me through then about eighteen months of time where we put together the the undercover front. and And that was put together with the help of several informants and concerned citizens. Um, there were two guys that were informants of mine who were, um, we would call them in, 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 in the underworld knock around guys. They, they didn't work for any one particular crew, but they were certainly part of a family. And, um, they, they, they and their under, uh, their, their organized crime contacts enabled us to be able to use certain businesses. Actually, both those guys played roles in the undercover operation from time to time. I would bring them in in cameos as my cousins. Now, one of the guys used to be um, a bodyguard for a capo in a crime family. And you can't, I mean, he would walk in a room and people would look at him and nobody had to say anything. They immediately recognized what he was really all about. Very much like the Dominic figure in the movie um, that um, is played by Joe Gillen. And uh the other guy was much more polished and had um some wall street contacts and um and then we also had an informant from columbia and then I had um a couple of lifelong friends of mine who were bankers and brokers who enabled me to establish accounts at various institutions um, and this took about an eighteen month period of time, and as I emerged from that, i was embedded in real businesses, a finance company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had a air charter service with a private jet, um, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East Coast, and even a brokerage firm um, with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I didn't have to be the best undercover agent in the world. I, I was blessed with leadership that gave me the latitude to put that together. And then um, we were waiting for a unique opportunity to use the Trojan horse that was built. And lo and behold, the uh, gentleman who became my partner and is now a brother to me, Amir Abreu, played by John Leguizamo in the movie, um, had an informant who had made connections with a money broker. Uh, that money broker being someone who personally knew uh, members of the Ochoa family who were sitting on a Medellin cartel. And who was trying to get himself well established in the money laundering business so with with uh, that opportunity, we engaged the Trojan horse and marched into uh, the medellin cartel and It took about two years to get to the end um, and And believe me, along the way, we were very lucky um, sometimes they say it's better to be lucky than good and and I'm proof of that uh, the, the good things that happened along the way, uh, for example, um, the people in the cartel wanted me to pay out in dollar accounts, but they preferred that they be dollar accounts established in institutions in Panama. For obvious reasons, the access by U.S. law enforcement was more restricted. So, I needed to open that up, and I had just happened to be driving through downtown Tampa and noticed this big gold sign that said Bank of Credit and Commerce International, (BCCI), and assumed that they must have the ability to help you bank in, in their foreign locations. I didn't really know much about the bank, so I called, and like anyone else who approaches a, an international bank that has a private client division, um, I was asked to provide uh, a resume, uh, copies of bank statements, um, copies of um, I needed references in the bank and business world. Um, I had all that stuff. I needed to have a million dollars that, uh, that I could potentially they could manage. All of that was verifiable. And um and I was invited to have a meeting at the bank. And I mean, here's an example of lucky instead of good. Um, I go in and I sit down and The the guy asks me what it is I'm looking for, and I explain. Well, you know, most of my clients are from Medellin, Colombia, and uh, they have businesses they have business activity here in the United States that generates a, a huge huge amount of capital, and it's my responsibility to help them to move that money in a very Discreet and quiet way, and, um, and and I didn't get much past all of that. And, and the guy said to me, "Well, you, do you do you think you'll have a need?" Because I was telling him about moving money in from Panama to buy real estate in the U.S. And he said, "Do you think you'll have a, a need to move it in the other direction?" And I said. Well, yeah, yeah um, there's no doubt about that. And then they, they broke into this discussion about, well, I know what you're talking about. That's the black money market. And we have clients like you that have sensitive clients. And, and um, we were helping them to open accounts in grand And until this treaty was signed with the U.S. government. Um, and I knew the treaty. The treaty had to do with turning bank records over in drug cases. And he said, you know, but we're, now we're recommending Panama. And ultimately he drifted into saying, "Well, you know you've got to be careful when the stupid people to get caught, get yourself involved in cash businesses so you've got to cover to take in the cash and I, I left that meeting and went and contacted my office and said, You're just not going to believe the meeting I just had. This is like every red flag I've ever been taught in my entire government career uh, to look for, and this is not an individual banker looking to do something." Against management. This is, this sounds like an institutional plan. And lo and behold, over probably a year and a half's period of time, I was able to, uh, get the evidence through discussions with you know, more than a dozen senior bank officials at that bank about the bank's institutional plan to market the underworld. Um that sounds like an easy thing to do and wasn't, but, um, but, it, it was amazing how lucky breaks. You know, I, I guess some people say luck is just um, being well-planned for the opportunity when it comes by and, and the opportunity came um, again, really, when we opened up an account in Panama and one of the checks uh, written by one of the bad guys because I would just sign the checks. One of the checks written by the bad guys um, was filled out improperly. It was supposed to be for let's just for example, say, say 103,000 and it was written in words 103,000 in numbers 103,500. And so the officer assigned to my account in Panama uh, called me and said, what amount should we honor? And I said, well, you probably know I can't answer that. I'll have to call Columbia and I'll call you back. And I did and I explained what the amount was to pay. And he said to me, um, you know, we need to meet because uh, you're going to get caught. and. Uh, There's a lot better way to do what you're doing. And so there was no doubt in my mind that the people managing my account in Panama could tell just from the movements in the accounts that we were marketing narco dollars on the black money market. And lo and behold, because of that mistake, (laughs) that got flushed out. He came to Miami. We sat down. Of course, all these conversations were being recorded and um, he explained how it is that I could better launder drug money and then and then I I said to him well it's great you're getting back on a plane you're going back to Panama Um, I'm here in Florida and if there's a problem and I need to see someone quickly are there any people in your Miami office that are on your team handling these kinds of sensitive accounts and at that stage he said yes and there were two people and he named them and when I called back to the office and explained that one of them was a a fellow named Anjad Awan, Uh, all the bells and whistles between Florida and Washington went off because that was the financial advisor that um, the U.S. government was eager to try to pin down. He was managing um, the illicit fortune of Manuel Noriega. And so, you know, he went from there to Paris, to London, to the Bahamas, um, and... Um, eventually, we we got to the end of the end of the story, but it was pretty well proven that the bank was uh, marketing the underworld, anybody with money that was seeking secrecy from governments.
2: And the Bank of Credit and Commerce International was at this time one of the ten biggest banks in the world. Is that correct?
4: Seventh largest privately held bank in the world at the time. Uh, their assets were, I think, about nineteen billion dollars. They were in seventy-two countries, more than five hundred and some branches. Um, As we substantiated later, their their clients included um, not just arms dealers and terrorists and drug traffickers and tax evaders, um, but also um, some of the bigger politicians in the world and the intelligence community as well.
0: You guys, you know what I hate more than anything? I'll tell you. It's compromising. It's the worst. I do not play well with others. I hate compromise. And so, therefore, I will not compromise when it comes to my shave, even though I don't actually shave. If I did, though, I would use Harry's for far too long. You've either paid too much for a comfortable shave. You've settled for a low price but low-quality razor. Not with Harry's, my friends. Harry's offers something you've never had before, a great shave at a fair
2: price. For real, Harry's makes its own high-quality razors. Uh, it cuts out the middleman and ships them directly to you. Forget this, half the price of the leading brand. So you've got a good shave, a good price. It's simple. You get the best of both with Harry's, and we've actually used these.
1: That's right. i, I do not not blowing smoke, guys. I used it on my neck this morning. The blades last
0: for a while. They've lasted since we got them. What, it's been several weeks now? Absolutely. And I, you know, with the, the the stuff that Harry sent to us, we also got some uh, little uh, uh, accoutrement. you know, some uh, shave gel, some cooling lotion, and a face wash. And I use that face wash every single day. It's got the little gritty things minty. in it. It's minty, yeah, exactly. It's very minty, but it has those <laughs> little grit things in it that kind of make you really feel like you're mm-hmm. getting your scrub on. I do that, you know. I don't yeah. have to shave to enjoy a nice, clean
2: face. Harry's starter set is called the Truman. That's the thing that we were checking out earlier it's a great option for new customers it's an amazing deal uh for just 15 bucks you guys you get a razor handle moisturizing shave cream uh, three of Harry's 5 blade german engineered razors plus there's a special offer for you just for checking out this show
1: harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase if you use the promo code conspiracy stuff hey that sounds like Thank us guys so if you go to harrys.com right now look for the truman set that's h a r r y s.com Enter the code conspiracy stuff at checkout and you'll get five bucks off and you're going to support the show by doing
0: it. So stop all that compromising. Stop letting people push you around. Stop letting these razor big wigs tell you how to shave. You need to give Harry's a try today. I just wanted to clarify something. Um, as, as as your relationship with these folks in the film, at least as it was portrayed in the film, progressed and you had to earn their trust and, and get their business and close the deal, it seemed to me that there was more going on than just moving money around, that you needed to show them that you could actually grow their money. Is that accurate or did I mis, uh, misinterpret that?
4: Well, I had, to, I had to be able to show that their money would be secure. I had to be able to, as they put it, we need guarantees. You know, people with illicit fortunes, unlike what I think some people suggest that they may try to trick a bank into laundering money, um, we never tricked anybody. And um, and my, my clients in the cartel never tried to trick anybody. Um, it was something that required uh, an agreement and an acceptance of responsibility, knowing full well that the consequences of Lost funds could be your life. Um, so uh, I was trying to get them to, and I I think to a degree succeeded, to get them not just to launder money through my accounts. That doesn't really accomplish much after you've laundered money for the same guy a couple of times. You know, if you continue to launder money for the same person and the money's going into the same place, uh, all you're doing is facilitating crime. Um, and so the the mantra by which we we uh, move forward was if you're not meeting any new bad guys and you're not uncovering any new crime, we get shut down. We should shut down. Um, and so we were always on the move of trying to to do just that. And we were also on the move to try to get them to keep money with us as long as we could, because if we get them to use us to invest their funds will have more to seize at the end, but even more importantly, and, and clearly more importantly, in order to be able to have the responsibility to invest funds for someone, in all likelihood, you're going to be able to force a meeting with the beneficial owner of the funds, and that's really what it was all about, getting past all these middlemen and trying to deal directly with the type of people, as Benjamin Bratt portrayed, um, who were major players uh, within a cartel. So, you know, the the investment um, angle, although it was nice to get investments to manage, was a technique to be able to meet people of responsibility, importance and authority within the cartel.
0: I have to ask about that Santeria scene. That was so compelling the way it was portrayed in the film. It was just as a life or death situation that, you know, from where we sit was tied to, you know, what some might call superstition. Um, what was walking into that situation like?
4: Well, nobody got killed sitting next to me, <laughs> but I, you know, it was pretty controversial. Um, I, I was dealing with a guy who his wife was related to Gacha Rivera, one of the members of the cartel <clears throat> and uh, I think it was uh, his wife was a niece <clears throat> and he was uh, a practicing uh, he he was practicing Santeria and he, as I got to know him some he said you know uh, I'm very interested in doing business with you but I need to make sure that my padrino, my priest um believes in you and so I'd like to. I'd like you to come to Miami and we'll go visit uh, the Santero and we'll uh, we'll see what he has to say well some people back in the, the office thought that was kind of way too risky that if the guy for whatever reason said no didn't matter how good we were what we did you know we were gonna lose the relationship Um, But I knew we weren't going to get a relationship with him if we didn't do it. So what do you have to lose, really? So um, it was in an area called Sweetwater in Miami. uh, Very low, I would say low blue collar at best kind of area. Um, The house itself had burglar bars on it. So once you were in, you were in a birdcage, you couldn't get out. Uh, I went there with him. He Went into the room with the priest. The room was just like a bedroom, uh, with a wooden floor, um, and I could see—I mean, there was an altar there. Um, I could see the and candles and statues and all that kind of stuff. And I could see that uh, there had been sacrifices there. There was dried blood on the floor, and you know, chicken parts and stuff like that. And um, uh, so I came into the room, and he wasn't. The guy wasn't uh a big, imposing, muscular guy like the guy in the film. But it's important to show that because he had a lot of power. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I I think, you know, you need to appreciate as a moviegoer when you look at that. When you see that guy, you, in the movie, you know he's powerful. <laughs> you can tell it from his body style. Well, the guy that I dealt with wasn't like that. He was much, uh, much lighter. But all he did was come and embrace me and turned back to the altar. And then he came back to me, uh, held my hands, and asked me to step outside, and I did. And then he brought the trafficker in there, and um, and then I waited outside. And when he came out, the trafficker came out, he was all smiles, and hugged me and said, you know, Padrino says you're a good and honorable man, and that I should do business with you, so we will. And when I told that story to the people in the office, some of them kind of chuckled because they said, well, you know, the, the priest wasn't that wrong. You're you are a good and honorable guy. It's just that you're not you're just not a, a money launderer, really a money launderer. So, you know, I don't know whether there's much to the, the idea or not, but um, it worked for them and it worked for me.
2: Yeah. And it's uh that was one of the scenes that really that really stayed with us uh, and also. The it seems like one of the most important currencies involved in this operation was trust. Was earning the trust of these people through, as you said, uh, the personality traits that they prized: stability, consistency, reliability. And when when we were looking at this this larger network uh, from Bank of Credit and Commerce International, uh one thing that we noticed that a lot of our audience will have questions about is the the nuts and bolts of converting drug money into something that appeared to be legitimate and ultimately what happened to the funds and the assets that were seized at the conclusion of operation sea chase Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That
1: means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises.
2: Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then... You found yourself subscribed?
0: Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had, like, put a new card on there, it still was tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to, like, go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying.
1: Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from
2: your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. That's chumbacasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. PDW reward prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is chasing life. 3 out of 4 US adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford
4: Well, you know, as far as laundering goes, it's like snowflakes. I mean, there's so many different ways in which you can do it. Um, very few are alike, but there are some fundamental issues. I mean, you've got suitcases and boxes full of cash, and you need to get it into the financial system so that you can make a payout um and either a wire transfer or a check. So what BCCI was doing at the time, and it's something that continues to happen today, you know, I, I I've read the... Deferred prostitution agreements and and the uh, toothless indictments that have been brought against banks in the in the recent past. I say toothless indictments because if you're indicted and you're a, a bank, you should lose your license. But th- that doesn't happen um, when indictments are returned against banks these days. Um, they wind up paying a fine and um, not a whole lot of people go to jail and and. Um, Uh, Life goes on, Uh, but when you, if you look at those deferred prosecutions, there's a section in there um, called the manner and means by which the the crime of how they're committing a, a crime for an account holder is done. And and I've looked at them. You know, there's one for, well, they all have a lot of a very, very similar tech techniques that were being used by BCCI back in the day or are clearly still being used based upon uh, my reading of the deferred prosecutions in the last five or six years. But anyway, uh, the long and short of it is that, number one, they offered to take the cash from us and deposit it into their branches, but they did, they were very mindful at the time that to do that in a U.S. branch needed, needed a, a very fine twist to it. So, um, I was offered to take the money to the Bahamas. I was offered to take the money to Uruguay. I was offered to take the money to, um, uh, Panama. Um, I do know that in other instances, uh, they were bringing in cash in Miami. Booking it in as though it was cash shipped back from the Bahamas branch um, and being deposited in in BCCI, Miami. Um, but once you get the cash in, uh, the next step was to take the capital and put it into a CD, which was normally done in Luxembourg. Um, they had to fi- uh, form a lot of... Um, they either had to form or I needed to get another lawyer to form one way or the other. The accounts needed to be in the name of an offshore entity. And most often those entities were in uh, BVI, uh, Panama, Gibraltar, um, those are the ones, Hong Kong. Um, so, a CD gets established, let's use as an example, a million dollars. And it's a 90-day CD with an automatic payout. Um, what they did then was they would go to another part of the world and they would, uh, open a facility, a loan facility. Um so a totally different entity would be issued a loan based upon, in the papers uh, of the bank, uh, just the, the financial, uh, worthiness of the, and the, of the corporation. So there was an off-book loan against the capital. No auditor would be able to link the two together. The loan proceeds were then moved to yet a third, fourth, and fifth foreign jurisdiction. And the reason for that is any time the U.S. government or any government wants to try to get bank records in a a jurisdiction, they've got to go through the legal process. That takes a very, very long period of time. If you've got um, a string of Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, France, and Panama uh, that you've got to get get through, um, the the theory is that uh, it'll take them... 15 years to get through all that stuff. So now the money it leaves the loan facility, it winds up going to Panama. Uh, it was, uh, at that stage, put into a uh, checking account, and then based upon, um, their preference was based upon oral instructions, pay, payouts would be made to different accounts in parts of the world that were controlled by the cartel. Of course, their accounts were opened up in the name of nominees. Um, and then those would be moved through other accounts. So you know there was a long, long line of of uh, bridges that had to be crossed before you could ever work your way back to the original cash deposit.
2: And that is the firsthand history of Operation Sea Chase. From the inside, Uh, we will be returning next week with part two of our interview with Mr. Mazur, wherein he details the present and the future of banks that practice money laundering in one way or another and what if any consequences befall those organizations not
0: to be too much of a tease here but we get into some really interesting territory including mr. Mazur's perspective on the war on drugs as a whole on things like marijuana legalization Mm -hmm. where we're heading as a country in that direction and this is an authority on this stuff and he's got some really interesting things to say so look forward to that
2: but first I feel like we've been saying butt first pretty often <laughs> yeah. as we're setting this stuff up. But first, this is the part of the show where we would typically do a shout-out corner. However... We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to have an in the news segment because something popped up recently, uh, probably on your news feeds. If you participate in social media, maybe you have seen a bunch of people walking around, staring at their phones, even more so than usual.
0: Running into walls, perhaps tripping over park benches, stopping cars in the street. Any yeah. number of bizarro scenarios. No, my friends, it is not the zombie apocalypse. It is, in fact, the gaming craze, dare I say, of our generation, app-wise, mm-hmm. Pokemon Go. Pokemon right. Go. I've okay. been looking forward to it, honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm into that stuff, so, you know.
2: So, uh, what, what the blue blazes, uh, what the smelly shenanigans, what the heck is Pokemon Go? Well,
1: if you've never heard of it or played it before, which would be rather astounding if this is the first time you're hearing about it, uh, but it's an augmented reality game. It's an app that you get on your smart device, uh-huh. and it uses your geolocation as well as uh, a lot of other information that's that resides within... Your phone, your accounts, your mm-hmm. Google account—just mm-hmm. uh, to know exactly where you are, where you're going, where the Pokemon exist around
0: you in the real world. But Matt, you've got to catch them all. It's, you get, take take my information, just give me Pokemon. <laughs> just put a Squirtle in my kitchen. That's all I've
2: ever wanted. That's true. You said that the day we met. I know. I was
0: like, <laughs> I just want—I could just have a Squirtle in my kitchen. I will be happy, man. But seriously, no. I have a seven-year-old, which is my excuse for playing the game uh-huh. uh you know yeah i buy legos
2: for my cousins yeah, bro exactly. don't feel bad exactly
0: no honestly it's a it's a it's a very thin um disguise for the fact that i am a bit of a nerd for this kind of stuff as well uh but yeah we played it and it's 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 one of these situations that we've talked about in the past with privacy, with buying and selling of your personal information. Sure. You submit to it, you know, on Facebook. It's like I want my newsfeed, I want to be able to have all this great free stuff. Take my information. I know that's a very odd opinion to have, me being on a conspiracy podcast, but I really am just like I just just have it. It's fine. You're gonna take it anyway.
2: Uh but one of the concerns also would be it's similar to the secondhand smoking argument because when people are walking around, you think about Google Earth, for instance. Google Earth did secondhand compromising of people, uh, possibly in terms of uh, the information that was available on, you know, Street View, things like that. But still, that's a public place. The street is a public domain sort of situation. One thing that Google and other companies of this nature couldn't do as easily is get into buildings, have a Google floor view, right? Uh, but now this stuff that's being captured on camera every time somebody chases a charizard or whatever, it is going somewhere, right? So the secondhand smoke in this situation would be, let's say, uh, one of our coworkers, name a coworker who wouldn't like this. Jonathan Strickland. He would love yeah, this. Yeah, just
1: say Matt Frederick. Oh, oh, Scott Benjamin. Scott oh. Benjamin,
2: yeah, Scott Benjamin, the man with no Gmail address, by the That's way. That's crazy. Uh, he, okay, so Scott Benjamin, uh, one of the co-hosts of our vehicle show, Car Stuff, uh, Scott Benjamin would probably never sign on to compromise the information on on his phone or in whatever accounts he has floating out there in the cloud. However, if, say, Jonathan Strickland is walking around hunting Pokemon, then the camera feed and the audio feed that his app is using could easily capture Scott Benjamin sits here during this time of day to this time of day. Now, of course, that's a... Um, somewhat of an extremist view that someone would care where a single person sits for a few hours every day, but it's generated a lot of concern, and we'd like to give a shout-out to a couple folks in particular who sent some information about this our way or asked about it.
0: Yeah, so Nicole Harris and Rob Phillips both were they had they were on the cusp. They knew what was going on and they reached out to us immediately and said that we should cover this. And there, it actually was referencing a pretty cool article on uh, Black Bag, which is Gawker's kind of conspiracy type blog. And um the most interesting thing from this article to me is the fact that. The company that developed Pokemon Go is a company called Niantic, which was founded by a guy named John Hanke. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It might just be Hank. Um, and he also founded a company called Keyhole that specializes in geo positioning location software.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Google Earth uses Keyhole's technology, as far as I'm aware. They absorbed Keyhole and likely folded some of the research
2: and technology that that company had done into Google Earth. But there's one more step, and uh, long-time listeners, you might recognize this next one. That's right. Keyhole got a
0: pretty sizable amount of funding from a firm Called Incutel. This is a firm that we have mentioned several times on this show, and we talked right. about
1: uh, the FBI and and other front agencies or front companies that agencies use uh, to put forward new technologies, emerging technologies. They'll get money from places like Incutel, inject it into, let's say, a company that's looking into geo, you know, GPS technology, and then they're like, hey, now we've got a flower that we created from this soil.
0: And here's the thing. I'm joking mainly when I say I'm being a bit nihilistic and saying, give me my squirtle, take my information. I'm fine with it. I don't really feel that way. Exactly. I just kind of feel like we are living in a situation where we are being monitored and it's almost like either do you live in fear and panic all the time, or you just kind of accept it and move on with your life and, you know, enjoy the free stuff that that allows you. Or are those the only two choices? Maybe not, and that's a good point, Matt. But what this makes me think of is um, there was a great interview with Edward Snowden on uh, Vice recently where he was showing you how to disconnect the cameras in your iPhone mm-hmm. and all of the microphones and kind of showing you where the different chips were and all this stuff, and he made a wonderful point where he was sort of like, yeah, I mean, now, okay, really, it's not super nefarious what's being done with this information. You know, no one is being... Um, monitored in any kind of nefarious way. No one is being targeted because of any of this stuff. It's just the technology is there. But what happens if we have a regime change where all of a sudden we're in more of a uh, totalitarian system and all of a sudden the man or woman in charge flips the switch and decides to really start using this Against us.
2: Right, and also it could be something a little more insidious, a, a um, progression by degree. Mm-hmm. So for instance, what if instead of a switch being flipped, it becomes a, a matter of insurance rates changing for someone because the the privacy agreement in Pokemon Go does explicitly allow the selling of this data or the transmission of this data to a third party. It's basically a, we'll do what we want. And good luck finding a squirtle sort of agreement. So this does mean that if, if, uh, if they wished the makers of Pokemon Go could, uh, take your geolocation data, let's say you're at, let's say you're always at some crazy place. Uh, what, what's a crazy place to be?
1: Crazy Town. Crazy Atlanta? Isn't there a, a restaurant called Crazy Atlanta? Let's say
2: you're at a place called Crazy Atlanta Town, and it's a known drug in, and uh, you're Information about that is is sent out and maybe your car insurance folks say, well, statistically, because we know that this person is at crazy Atlanta town, the notorious drugged in bar, then their insurance rate is going to go up because we can't say that they're taking drugs and driving or whatever, but they're there for two hours between one and uh, between one and three a.m. every night and they're driving home after that. So this, I mean, is this substantiated? I don't think so. Uh Is it possible? Yes, but is it probable? That's a whole nother bag of badgers. So we want to know what you guys think. Is Pokemon Go is an example of AR that's just a game changer teaching us the capabilities of this amazing technology we hold? Or is it something a little bit more perfidious? Is it something a little bit disingenuous? Uh, and do you play Pokemon Go?
1: Also, what do you think about all the stuff that Robert Mazur was talking about in, in this interview about banks and just taking money, just taking billions of dollars of drug dealers money and just converting it because they make a huge profit and they don't really get in trouble for it?
2: Yes, let us know what you think about all of the above. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are Conspiracy Stuff. You can also find us on Instagram, speaking of uh, privacy violations, on Conspiracy Stuff Show.
0: If you don't feel like messing with any of that stuff, you can just send us a good old-fashioned email. We are Conspiracy at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: on the iHeart Radio
5: app